and it was absolutely one of the most shocking experiences I've had in my life just to see acres and acres and mountains a whole landscape of this colored life vest material and crushed boats and giant slashed rafts and and that each one of those life vests was a person hey welcome to green canvas my name is toby carpenter and this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is Pam Longobardi, an artist, environmentalist, and professor of art at Georgia State University. In 2006, after discovering the mountainous piles of plastic debris the ocean was depositing on the shores of Hawaii, Pam began collecting and utilizing plastic as the primary material for her artwork in a project called Drifters. Now a global collaborative entity, the initiative has removed tens of thousands of pounds of plastic debris from environments and shores across the planet and transformed them into artworks that have been featured in publications such as National Geographic and been shown at exhibitions like the Venice Biennale. If you'd like to see some of Pam's work, we have a couple of links in the show description that you might like to check out. And so without further ado, here's our conversation and I hope you enjoy it. I read that in 2006 on the shores of Hawaii, you discovered a lot of plastic debris which kind of shifted the direction of your work but I was wondering, what was your work like before then? What type of things did you explore in your, your artwork? Well, um, I actually have been working in many different mediums my whole life. I've, I've been dealing with photography, sculpture, installation, painting, drawing, collage, um, video. <laughs> and so I was doing all those things, um, but I hadn't kind of narrowed the focus of a particular materiality at that point. So what I was doing specifically in Hawaii at the time, and it was actually um, uh, a summer of 2005, I believe I was there. And I was doing these very, very small collages, like micro collages out of devalued and defunct currency, global currencies. Like, you know, when the euro replaced all of the, you know, currencies of, of Europe, I, I was able to gather lots of those. And then as values of currency have changed over time, they, they become very, very, very destabilized. And so, you know, often the currency isn't worth the paper it's printed on. And so it, beca- it was kind of an, an interesting picture of the world in the way that trash is, I think, and plastic in particular, um, because it, it reflects the value systems of places. It reflects the um, economies of places. It reflects commerce, it reflects um, how things move around in the world. And so, you know, to me, those two things are very aligned. And I still work with devalued currency in the collage form. And I've shown it oftentimes alongside of, you know, larger constructions of plastic objects that I find as well. I consider them sort of libraries of information and imagery. And, you know, so they are something that I like to really dig down into and reconstruct in a way so that they can form a message. 
So I was doing those small collages um, down there at the South Point in a residency and um, just had to go to that tip, which was, you know, taking the whole frontal force of the Pacific Ocean as the current drove up towards the North Pacific subtropical gyre, which we all know now houses the largest of the garbage patches. And um, yeah, I saw all this unbelievable array of materials on the beach there. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, I completely sort of shifted towards that material as, as an investigation and um, initially took kind of forensic photographs of what I considered a crime scene, that all of these things were just um, evidence of a crime against the natural world. And, and then began collecting it, then began, began analyzing it, be, began studying the deposition, and ultimately started to read messages from this material. And what was it like seeing all of that plastic for the first time? What did it feel like? Was it just a total shock or...? It was a shock, but you know, when I saw it from a distance, because I'm an artist, it was it was strangely fascinating and attractive. It was just all these colorful shapes and piles. I saw them from a distance, and I thought, "What is that? Is that did an artist make an art installation down here?" That's literally what my first thought was. And then, as I got closer and closer, I saw, "Oh my God, this is this is plastic. It's all garbage, and it's coming out of the ocean because nobody lives down there." Uh, anywhere near this spot. And um, so I, I realized that the ocean was literally vomiting this out in order to expel it. Um, yeah, so my initial my initial reaction was fascination and then horror. And did you know you wanted to start a project for Mitt straight away? I did. I did. And um, I was having a show upcoming in January of 2006. So what I did was I started to photograph it. I collected a lot of the material and I realized that, you know, my time was kind of over at this residency and I realized that I had to go back and really dig in to tell the story and collect more material because I felt like I had to bring back this evidence in order to show people, you know, this is what's happening with these toothbrushes and combs and plastic bottles and all other kinds of weird stuff that you've never even imagined is showing up in this place and it's getting there via the networks of uh, commerce that are, first of all, shipping it across the oceans. And then second of all, the uh, hydrodynamic engine of the ocean and how that moves all this material around. I found almost every language on earth on some object printed at, at the south point of the Big Island. And so it was it was crazy. It just was, you know, like stumbling upon something that I knew would be a very, very long project right from the start. At this point, were you, did you keep going back to Hawaii to collect plastic objects or were you scouring different locations across America and other parts of the world? Well, uh, because I, I only was just barely getting acquainted with this site the first time I was there. And I realized that there was something important to be gathered from returning over and over again to the same location. Um, like Steve McPherson, for example, has been cleaning his own little beach by his home, uh, you know, for his whole life. And, and so in the, in the beginning, I really understood that I'm going to learn something about the way the ocean is moving this material around, what's floating, what's coming uh, up, or maybe perhaps going away like the giant netballs 
literally move. And we were down there filming uh, the following year. Um, and I, a giant netball had come ashore, you know, something that was the size of a bus. And we found it that one day and went back the next morning and it was gone <laughs> because the ocean had, the tide had come in and moved it and taken it and put it somewhere else. So, you know, I, I was just really trying to understand what was happening with this material and what its relationship was once it leaves our hands and, and enters the natural world and therefore, you know, invades the, the homes of all these other creatures and ultimately their stomachs. And did it take you a while to construct a language for how you wanted to express the project or, or the way that you wanted to present the plastic debris and in, in what format? Yes, it actually it actually did. That's a really cool question because um, a bee just flew in and I'm just, <laughs> hi, he's so cute. I'll get you later so you can go outside. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I was, you know, I was working with a native Hawaiian at the time who became a, a close friend. And, you know, he'd been seeing this, uh, you know, material escalating over the, his lifetime. And he and I actually kind of came up with the name uh, of Drifter's Project because, you know, in, and, and it was in some ways even more perfect than I could have imagined because I really, really was kind of influenced early on by James Mishner's book called The Drifters. and I kind of consider myself a drifter in some way. I'm just very fascinated to travel and move around and see the world through different perspectives. And um, and then the, the material is, of course, uh, you know, a kind of drift of contemporary materiality. And it, it literally is drifting in the ocean seas and it is uh, in the ocean waves. And it is um, also you know, drifting in and out of our lives, often completely unconsciously. So that word to me, Drifters Project, really encapsulated the entire concept I was looking for. And then as I started to make it, you know, again, I, I started to really think about this. Okay, if this is a crime, what do we do? We need to collect the evidence. We need to document forensically the the material. And, and that is um, how I started to talk about this as a kind of forensic aesthetic process and how has the the project grown over the years what's kind of been a timeline of its development and where is it now are you still working on it too oh absolutely um it's kind of even getting bigger and bigger just because of um this kind of new wave of it called ocean gleaners which i'll describe in a moment but uh the first couple years i did really focus on Hawaii and that South Point because I wanted to learn from one site that was very dynamic and very, very inundated with, uh, you know, materials and changing all the time. I wanted to learn as much as I could about that. And then pretty soon, you know, of course, I started to notice it anywhere that I went. And um, shortly after that, I started to um, work with Oceanic Society, which is the oldest nonprofit conservation, marine conservation organization in the United States. It was started in 1969 in San Francisco, and they've been in action um, since then. And so I, I became their artist in nature, which was an amazing opportunity because it gave me a chance to go on some of their big, large-scale expeditions. So I started to travel with them a bit, um, early trips included a very, very remote place. And this was a very small expedition. It was 
essentially myself and two others who had been on the ground there already. But that was to uh, Armila, Panama, which is a part of the world that is completely, the land is owned um, and there it's an indigenous culture there called the Cunayala. And they have their own intact um, customs and language and, and, you know, monetary system. And so I was able to live with them for two weeks. And they also simultaneously have one of the most important leatherback sea turtle nesting areas in the world. And leatherbacks are the oldest living sea turtle that's still around. Um, they're, they're from the age of the dinosaurs. And so um, they're enormous. They're, they're ancient. They're, they swim the entire globe. They're fascinating creatures, and it's really important to this culture there. So it was during the height of the nesting season for the the sea turtles there, and and the beaches are unbelievably impacted. It's such a high impact zone, and this plastic is coming from everywhere. And this is literally a tribe that has no electricity. They have no municipal services. There are no roads to this place. You have to take a plane and two boats to get there. And so they're as in some ways as isolated from the modern world as you could possibly get. And yet the modern world is coming to their doorstep, you know, and um, they have to move this plastic and giant logs and things like that, which are natural materials, but they're still clogging up the beach for um, the turtles to lay. And so they move those and get them out of the way. Um, in order for that to happen. So, you know, I was there at a really important time and I saw the interconnection between specifically these incredible air-breathing creatures that are on land and sea and how our materiality, our waste, our plastic pollution is really affecting their chances of survival. From there, I I actually started going to um, other places. I went to Asia. I went to uh, you know the far reaches of islands, uh, island nations, um, Indonesia, and I started on a long-term project in Greece, and that was separate from Oceanic Society. But I made a connection there with a culture cent- cultural center, who has supported my project. So I have now been working there for ten years and starting to really understand how another kind of old civilization has adapted or been maladaptive to their plastic. And that's another whole story. <laughs> As you were traveling around the world and, and visiting these locations, were there any locations that stood out to you that you were shocked by the amount of plastic on these locations? Were there Was there any place in particular? Well, I would certainly say Armila, Panama. Again, that's right on the border of Colombia. It's right in the ar- narco-trafficking area. There are armed guards, you know, all around because of that border. I mean, I walked into Colombia from there. So that was really, that was a real shock. And it's, as I mentioned, very, very isolated. Um, I was also shocked at what I saw in Greece, in particular on Kefalonia. That was the island that I started working on and have been going back for the past decade. There, That island has a different set of circumstances. Even though it feels in some ways like the big island, it's kind of sparsely inhabited. It's got a, a central mountain form. It's got um, lots of very variations in uh, you know climate zones, like there's small eco-climate zones that are interesting changes of weather and plant life and animal life. But the thing that Kefalonia has in particular are sea caves. And so I 
I started to really explore the sea caves, which become like a kind of library of time of plastic materials. So in the winter, there are enormous storms that just lash around those islands. This is in the Ionian Sea. And um, you don't understand that when you're there in the summer because it's very calm, very placid. There's hardly a wave, uh, you know, to speak of. And then, and yet I would find these caves and the first cave that I cleaned was just packed. It was a tiny cave. I crawled to, all the way to the back and just started throwing back what I could find. And there were, first of all, tons of styrofoam. And I started to learn about the styrofoam and why it was so present in the Greek islands. And it's because of the fishing industry. And the fishing industry, um, you know, of that particular area and all around the Mediterranean has been fished heavily for many, many millennia. And it is um, pretty much overfished. So the... uh, Things that you're able to catch now are, are, you know, much, much smaller. In fact, I have found nets made of olive bags, which have, you know, a hole for the, you know, the eyes of the net, which are the holes that prevent something larger from passing through. And they're using ones that are like, you know, a quarter inch in size now because they're literally catching the babies of everything. And it's, you know, that's, that's a person's um, livelihood. It's their way of you know, eating a lot of times. So it's not the same at all as the commercial fishing, factory fishing that's happening all over the world. However, the effect it's had on, on um, in terms of plastic is that these fishermen no longer can fill a hold, you know, a, a refrigerated part of the fish that are of the boat that is packed with fish as they are out for several days. Um, so they, they buy these throwaway styrofoam coolers and often you know the bait comes in it and so they they may use it to to take their their catch back out you know because they don't need a big area anymore because none of the you know none of the fishermen are catching a lot of large fish anymore and consequently and i heard this directly from one of the fishermen a lot of the fishermen just break up those styrofoam things and throw them back in the ocean and so that is why you see so much of that material there in addition of course to you know tourism to just the natural breakup of this material, which is very fissile. It breaks down very easily into those little balls, which look exactly like fish eggs or, you know, some other kind of egg that is food source for a lot of ocean creatures. Yeah. But so the styrofoam was huge. The next thing that I noticed was of course, billions of water bottles. Um, As in lots of places, there's mythologies about whether the city and municipal drinking water is safe. Um, that has been, a, a, you know, another discovery I've kind of tracked down, um, you know, done my detective work. And really, and the truth is, most of the places around the world that have, you know, municipal services for the treatment of water, the water is safer and cleaner than you're going to get out of any plastic bottle. We now know that those bottles are full of uh, microplastic and microfibers. Um, there's been a recent study that's ha- you know revealed that most of the different brands that were tested had that in them. You're also getting the chemical load of all the endocrine disrupting chemicals like the bisphenols, the phthalates uh, in particular, and those are contaminating that water. Even at room temperature, it's already leaching into the water. So 
you know, there's nothing really worse, I think, than drinking water, you know, a, a life-sustaining substance out of a plastic bottle because you are poisoning yourself. And of course, you know, it's almost fashionable to have at least very sexy bottle shapes and the different, you know, distilleries of the water have their own shape and coloration and, you know, they're seductive objects and, and, you know, they're using that marketing that to us to get us to want to drink it. So I saw, of course, that. And, and then the last thing, which was fascinating was, um, well, there's two more things. One was uh, this sort of archive of shoe history. <laughs> so the, at the front of the cave, there were recent finds, uh, you know, the recent styles of shoes, like we call them flip-flops. I think, uh, you know, other places call them different things. In Hawaii, they're slippers. Uh, but, you know, those sort of like long sandals uh, that are made of plastic rubber combination and Crocs, of course, because those had a big, big splash in the world. And there's Crocs and fake Crocs and all of that. Going a little deeper, I found, you know, kind of like the more uh, conservative shoes that might have been, you know, very nice shoes at one point. But the sole, instead of being leather, is, of course, plastic. So that might remain or, you know, any kind of pleather or something that's, of course, going to be there. All the way back to, you know, it had to be like 60s, I would say, um, giant platform shoes. Um, you know, so this was like a history of shoe fashion encapsulated in this cave. And the last thing I found in the very, very back was a skull of a goat and his little bell collar. And that to me was another like poignant moment where I realized that this cave of plastic garbage was the grave of a little goat that, you know, in Greece, the, the shepherds really love their creatures. They stay with them all day. They know them by name. They, um, they really, you know, have a relationship with these animals and, and they each have a little bell collar on because they want to be able to keep track of them. And so it was almost like finding someone's pet, you know, in the back of this cave. And, um, yeah, it was incredibly sad to me. And before you came to these locations, were there any authorities or any other people that were cleaning up the plastic debris? Or were you one of the first people that came? No, I think people have been doing it, um, you know, independently for a while. And I think for some reason, at around the early, you know, part of the 2000s, a lot of people got the call, you know, from the ocean, like, hey, wake up, we're in trouble here, we need help. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, we we, we know now when certain people started to do this. And, and uh, now that I know a lot of the people that have been doing this for a long time, uh, it's, it's similar that we all got it around the same time, which is fascinating. But uh, I, of course, you know, cleanups have been happening I think just as a way of kind of making the beaches look more appealing, you know, because an economy like Greece relies on tourism, many, many island economies do. So you don't want to, you know, trip over all the garbage when you're walking to a beautiful, beautiful natural location. And then, of course, there, there were also sea turtle rescue uh, groups on that island that were confronting the plastic, you know, as an impediment to the sea turtles uh, success in nesting. And so they were doing it as well. But in a way, it was kind of interesting because a lot of these groups were working separately. And 
through a project that I uh, started with my collaborator, Gianna Cohen, who is the um, co- one of the co-founders and now the CEO of Plastic Pollution Coalition. We, we started a concept called Plastic Free Island, and it was started on Kefalonia. And what, what our idea was to make a kind of template, an exportable model for how you could address any location, especially an island, because islands are a contained area um, and they're surrounded by water. So they have, you know, this sort of interface of the land-based and the water-based plastic pollution. Um, and most of them are, are suffering from a lot of it. So how can you, how can you mobilize, you know, a community to address this and to understand how the plastic straw you get in your afternoon frappe, which every Greek loves and enjoys and, any person that visits there soon comes to love and enjoy uh, <laughs> is really causing a huge problem, you know, in the ocean. And, um, and so, you know, we, we kind of used that as a, as a talking point. And we went to a lot of the, the little um, bars and cantinas that are spotted around on the beaches and handed out hundreds and hundreds of these stainless steel straws. I think that, you know, that was a good, uh, that was a good starting point. And then we also talked to people, um, you know, who were living there their whole life and had seen this really change come underway and people that were owning hotels and how they've, you know, tried to address this. So we were able to to gather um, lots and lots of people together who hadn't formally been connected. And we were on the radio announcing cleanups and doing interviews and, and whatnot for the course of a whole month. Um, and we made a documentary film that was premiered at uh, the Blue Ocean Film Festival in Monaco and has since gone on to screen all over the world and has won a few awards. And And so that's still an idea we, we are using. Um, it did it did jump the pond, we say, <laughs> uh, over to um, actually back into my hemisphere, which included, um, you know, places in... Belize and uh, St. John, which is in the um, U.S. Virgin Islands and some other locations. So it is an idea and it is a starting point. And I think the idea of something being a plastic free island is an aspirational concept where, you know, it's obviously not plastic free. I mean, there's no place on Earth, I think, that is at this point. And it's really hard to stop the machine by yourself. But what it involves is this transformational thinking and understanding that we have the tools. We have all these ways because they're the old ways. You know, we, we didn't always have plastic and we used other materials and we got along fine and we didn't have this toxic disaster. And once you've collected all of this debris and material, what's your usual process for them creating works out of it? Oh, great question. So, you know, for me, the process includes everything that happens on the beach during the cleanups, because what that involves is a kind of placing myself or any person's placing themselves into a state of openness. And that openness involves um, being receptive to the possibility that you are going to make a connection with the non-human world. And that the connection could include just being in a place and being 
observant and paying attention to something other than our normal distractions and cell phones and even other people are, are a distraction. So, you know, in some ways, my, my favorite way of doing this is, is even with it's, even if it's with a lot of people to have everyone disperse and just go have your experience. Right. And, and, you know, stop talking for a minute and start listening. And so, you know, the action of doing that does cause crazy, you know, I call it magical things, you know, to happen. And I think it's because we, uh, we don't often give credence to the fact that there is an intelligence outside of human intelligence, a, a very elaborate and larger and greater and more ancient intelligence than we have. And, um, you know, simply putting yourself in the presence of that and asking for information, just being open to that, then you get it. And, and, uh, I started to notice that all of this plastic had something to say and that I, I literally believe this. I believe that the ocean is a conscious entity. I believe that is an intelligent entity and that it is communicating with us through this material that we have made, the plastic, because we understand it. And it's almost a kindergarten language, you know, because I think I have found things laying next to each other that uh, have made me just, um, you know, drop my jaw and shock almost. Um, Things that have made me completely crack up. Uh, you know, I think the ocean has a sense of humor <laughs> and, um, and I literally just got back from a trip in South Carolina where it involved an alumni from the school who's been very supportive of our program, um, and five, uh, grad students and my director and my Dean, and we were all on the hunt for these ocean messages. And so everybody found their thing, right? So for example, um, my director, who's named Joe Perugini, is a wonderful painter and sculptor, and he's been making for decades um, paintings of animals, but particularly rabbits. And he found a plastic rabbit, like within less than a minute of a grad student who had been taking very intimate portraits of her vagina, actually, and she found a plastic top that was kind of a fleshy pink color that had been smashed into an oval shape that had, you know, the top of it was actually worn off. So it was literally like a double opening. I mean, it totally was looked like a vagina. And she found that almost simultaneously with the the director. And it was literally within our first attempt. And we were on the city streets of Charleston and in a tropical storm. It was pouring rain. So, you know, it was just, okay, these people are out there, you know, really working it. I'm imagining the ocean thinking, and I'm going to, I'm going to prove it to him like with a whammy. (laughs) The next day, uh, there was also one more person I forgot to mention who was our development director who was French and his name is Benoit. And he was the last person to find his message, I guess. And what he found eventually, he wasn't a believer (laughs) until he found this, but on the last day he found a sand toy that was a plastic croissant. In my entire life doing this, and a person growing up on the beaches, uh, you know, in New Jersey, I have never seen a plastic croissant as a beach boy. <laughs> you know, so it was there, and he found it. Uh, you know, so I just think, you know, there, there, there are many more examples I could give. Um, 
the very first time I knew this, I found a um, an army man and a camel within uh, you know feet of each other on the same beach. It was during the height of the first Iraq war, which was a war about oil. And my mind was kind of running through, is this an army man from an army man toy set and a camel from a zoo set or a circus set of plastic toys? Did the ocean find them and put them next to each other? Iraq war desert, you know, toy sets. And, you know, the whole thought process made me realize oh my God, there's something at work here that I do not understand. Because here's a plastic toy, which is, you know, signifying its location through the camel, but as being in the Middle East, and that is a war about oil. And the plastic is made from oil. And to top it all off, both of them were completely worn down. So they were amputees. And it was like, I'm done. This is for real. So so your your philosophy and outlook towards the ocean, did it first stem from interacting with this soldier and this camel or did you always kind of feel this affinity towards the ocean and that it was a conscious entity before then? Well, yeah. Um, again, another great question. My dad was an ocean lifeguard. So we had, uh, you know, lifetime of stories uh, of his great adventures out there and his rescues. And I also had a, um, a near-death experience when I was about eight when my dad was playing with us on a beach on the Jersey Shore. And he had my little sister out. If I was eight, that means she was three. And he was taking her out into, you know, the waves and, you know, just getting her used to the feeling of the water, which we'd all been through. And uh, my brother and I both got sucked into a riptide and we were jammed into different parts of a jetty. I had no idea what was happening to him until later, of course. He kind of went out to sea and I was stuck in between two, you know, posts of a jetty that were completely covered with barnacles. And I was jammed in. And so I was literally stuck underwater. And I could only catch a breath when the wave pulled back. And when it pulled back, I got a little breath. And then I'd struggle and I reached up and I was slitting my hands and my arms and my fingers from from all the barnacles. I couldn't get out. And I literally at some point decided, well, this is it. It's over now and I'm going to drown. And I just decided to open my eyes when I was underwater. And I saw all the barnacles feeding and they had these beautiful little feathery things out in the water catching plankton. And just looking at that and realizing that, you know, there was this whole like life around me, I think just physically relaxed my body enough to where I came out of it by myself on the next wave. It just pushed me out. The lesson for that really for me was that I needed to to learn the lesson of saving myself and that the ocean was going to be a master teacher to me in my life. And so that was the beginning of that for me. Um, and then I lived in landlocked areas for quite a long time. And early 2000s, I realized I had to get ocean back in my life. And I started doing lots of trips to Hawaii and um, really get a chance to explore. It was Maui. And so eventually over time, I, you know, I got to know other islands and, and then that led to the residency stay on the big island where I saw the plastic inundation. So the other part of the story actually is that my dad 
was a biochemist who worked for Union Carbide. Okay. I don't know Union Carbide. Union Carbide is one of the um, early plastic developers. And they were eventually bought by Dow Chemical. But when he worked for them, it was called Union Carbide. And they were they were developing glad bags, we call them in the United States. It's like giant plastic trash, trash bags and sandwich bags and you know all that kind of stuff. And they also were experimenting with expansion foam, which, uh, you know, comes in an aerosol can and you spray it and it's like for insulation, it just swells up and fills spaces with styrofoam, essentially polystyrene. Um, my dad brought home chemicals and was mixing those together on the kitchen table one day and like the stuff comes out and, you know, it was crazy. So I've, I've sort of been around that, the, both of those things my whole life. And so, you know, when I saw them colliding in the way that they were in this drastic, like desperate attempt of the ocean to get rid of this plastic, I, you know, it was just like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And over the years of creating artwork from this project, what artwork have you made that's got the most public attention or, or media attention? And and why do you think that particular work got the attention it did? If there is one stat, one or two standout pieces. Sure. Yeah, I I think I can talk about two. Um, and they're very different parts of the world. In uh, in about two thousand eight, I was invited to to become part of an expedition um, that was going to go around the Alaskan coastal islands, and it was going to include artists and scientists and policymakers and they were you know the whole thing was about studying plastic pollution so um howard farron was the initiator of the project and he his wife had been collecting this plastic from seward alaska where they lived for a very long time and he was the conservation um biologist at the uh, alaska sea life center at the time and he called me he said he had a whole list of of people um, that his uh, research assistant had found that were working with plastic artists that were working with plastic pollution. And somehow I got lucky enough to get the first call. And he said, would you be interested in this? And I said, heck yeah, I would. And uh, I, I started to work with him. It took us several years to raise the money um, to do that. And he was really the grant writer. I was just in some ways like the art, the art consultant and, uh, I, I helped invite other artists to be part of it, but we really got the most leverage when the Anchorage Museum came on board as a sponsor, and they were able to get a Smithsonian grant, um, a Warhol grant, I think, and 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 also a Rauschenberg. Um, they got a lot of support for the idea of art and science coming together as an agent for social change. And so the expedition was astonishing. Um, it, it ended up being seven, eight days, like something like that. And we went from Seward down to Kodiak Island and back. And National Geographic uh, got involved, so they made this beautiful film, um, which you can see for free on the internet. And um, I made two pieces for that exhibition. And one was a giant black cornucopia that was just gnarly and encrusted and monstrous looking and it was big it was about 10 feet by five feet by five feet and it um was spewing out all this colored plastic materials giant 
floats and buoys and nets and, you know, all kinds of stuff that we found on the expedition. And the title of it was Bounty Pilfered. So the other event that kind of coincided with the making of that piece was the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. And this location is kind of my home beach here in Atlanta, even though it's in Alabama. But it's where my husband and I got married. My sister has a home there. And I've just been going there, you know, for many, many years. And that that disaster did a big number on the Gulf. And you will not uh, hear people talk about it because BP paid people some money as retribution for lost wages, for lost income, for lost even material possessions, homes and whatnot. But you had to sign essentially a gag order never to speak about what really happened. I did talk to people off the record about dumpsters full of dead dolphins, about how sick they were getting when they were out, you know, trying to fish later, um, how the fish stocks even to this day are nowhere near the way they used to be. It was a crime to me that has never been fully rectified. And so that piece had BP as part of it. So it was a double entendre in a way because Bounty Pilford also refers to the idea that, you know, the, the ocean is a bounty. It's a, it's a life zone. It is a the reason for the climate on our planet. It is where life started on this planet. And it is in deep trouble now, uh, you know, pardon the pun. And every time we go into these places where we're kind of desperately seeking the last drops of oil and we don't really know what we're doing. In fact, there was another freaking spill in the Gulf. A few days ago, ago. the fire. Yeah. I don't know why they haven't stopped this. We are incapable of this technology. We do not know what we're doing. And we're re really destroying ourselves and the planet with this. So, you know, that was part of my thinking behind that piece. And it was it was definitely one that people could understand. They could relate to it. And, of course, the, the cornucopia is a, a symbol in the United States. And actually in Greece, it's a very old symbol. Um, for 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 bounty and plentiful um, plentifulness, and so I uh, I did that piece, um, and then the other one I, I I wanted to mention was something that I did on another island in Greece, which was Lesbos, and that island I went to for the first time in 2015, and it was right after we had produced the film Plastic Free Island, and and there was a conference called. International Small Islands Association, I think. And the conference had to be postponed for several years before I actually got there because of the refugee crisis that was happening there. And so when I finally arrived in 2015, they were deep into the crisis. It was beyond the crisis point. They'd, ha you know, they'd had enough time and support and just sheer gumption to, to house all these refugees, to to try to take care of them, to feed them, to, you know, to literally care for them and build the camps that, you know, and try to get them home or somewhere safe. Um, Lesbos is a small island. I think it has a, uh, you know, a population of only in the tens of thousands. And they had, at that time, over half a million refugees land on that island. And this was a disaster that really had its origins in climate change. And 
the refugees that I encountered there were um, not just from the Middle East. They were from Africa, you know, Somalia, uh, you know, uh, all the different countries in Africa. And they were from all the countries in the Middle East. And so what we're seeing really is a combination of war refugees. And for us in the United States, for some reason, that, that whole crisis was was called the Syrian refugee crisis because of the war, but was obviously much more than just Syria. And I read early on um, a New York Times article that described the reasons behind the Syrian war outbreak as being from climate change. And what happened was there, there, were, um, there was a series of years of drought, and it had caused a tremendous amount of food insecurity especially outside of the um, main cities. And so a lot of people were just pouring into the cities who were desperate for food and work and, um, you know, livelihood. And just that inundation of, of desperate people, as often happens, caused a lot of social unrest. And uh, it just ultimately led to the civil war that was happening. And so the origins, though, of course, was in climate change. And then, you know, the, the people from Africa, a lot of them were economic refugees, and they were also similarly suffering from, um, you know, droughts and whatnot in their home countries. You know, and so we had the war refugees, we had the climate refugees, and we had the economic refugees. It's literally all the same thing. And so at the bottom of, of this now human migration is climate change. And I think at the center of climate change, this plastic and the way that these these poor souls were you know leaping off into the unknown in tiny little crappy rafts oftentimes with completely dysfunctional uh, life vests even those little pool floaties you know those those little cuffs that are made of thin thin plastic that they put on babies in swimming pools those things were you know the the smugglers were putting on on children fake inner tubes, real inner tubes, um, fake life vests. So, you know, in making this work I did, I was cutting open a lot of the life vests and there were some that were fake life vests. They were not even made of flotational material. They were stuffed with empty plastic bags or newspapers. So I decided that I, I needed to make something with this material, this life vest material of the 600,000 plus refugees who had landed on this island. Um, they had put it up into a a, a dump of a town up in the mountains. And I found out where it was and was able to go visit it. And it was absolutely one of the most shocking experiences I've had in my life, just to see acres and acres and mountains, a whole landscape of this colored life vest material and crushed boats and giant slashed rafts. And, and that each one of those life vests was a person who had come, you know, in, in, in desperation to try to, to save themselves. So the symbol of the life vest, you know, as being a, a, a saving object. And then the fact that, of course, that they're also made of plastic, just, just all kind of tied together into this idea. And I visited and worked in some of the camps, decided I had to come back. So I went back in December. It was bitter cold. A lot of the refugee camps had, you know, barely heaters. and um, I was working at one particular camp called Pikpa, which is a beautiful location. It was uh, an open camp, meaning they were not prisoners there. They were The people that were there were allowed to come and go as they pleased, and it was mostly families. 
and they had a program there where they were already making these beautiful bags and backpacks out of the life vests. And so I started to go up to the camp and collect these vests and I brought them lots and lots of vests so they could make their things. But also I started to make my idea, which was to make a flag, a flag for this new nation of refugees, which were people from all different countries who now had no country. And this would be a kind of portable monument um, to these these migrants and their plight. And so I started to make it in the camps. And the amazing thing was I, I had brought two sewing machines with me um, that I was planning to leave there um, for the, for them to use. And there were, there was a tailor who was from Afghanistan and, you know, he spoke not a word of English. I of course speak no Afghani, uh, but we, started sewing together and he was, you know, pulling all the pins out. I'd like carefully pinned everything together. He didn't need pins. He was like showing me up by far. I'm not a seamstress. And, and he really helped, you know, get the thing going. And it just was like kind of an amazing, he was so happy to have a sewing machine, you know, and, and I was so happy to learn from him. And so that, that piece was part of a show that I had in 2017 in June and the gallery um, supported the project by buying hundreds of the bags from this group, um, Lesbos Solidarity, who had making been making them, and we were and we gave them all the proceeds of selling them um here because it was really hard for them to ship them, obviously. And then the the flag itself was purchased by Agnes Scott College. And so I was able to go back to Lesbos with thousands of dollars to give back to them. And and so that that to me that piece was completed its highest mission you know that it it did its job you know in a way i think that art can sometimes do and and on a day-to-day basis what are some things you've incorporated into your life in order for you to live as as sustainably as possible well i i haven't drank out of a plastic water bottle since uh probably (laughs) 2006 i absolutely don't use plastic straws I have my cloth bags, my reusable bags in my car for when I go to the market. And I, you know, like everyone, it wasn't a habit. I forgot them in the beginning. I had them in my car and I get in the store and I'm like, ah, I did it again. (laughs) And then I made myself one time. This is how I cured it. I made myself carry all my groceries to the car because I forgot the bag and I never forgot the bag again. (laughs) <laughs> so um it's simply a habit and you know one point i do want to make though is that plastic is very political and, and we need to recognize that that we have been pawns in a giant science experiment for one thing that it's political in that you know the oil lobby and the plastic lobby are one and the same they are in this together and you know this is uh you know the end of the fossil fuel uh driven era that we're in. You know, I think we are approaching the point where of no return. We better figure this out. We need to get to renewables ASAP. And uh, that when you hear things about how plastic is safe and healthy and um, the cheapest way to do things and it's saving fuel because of the shipping, you need to know that you are being manipulated and that you are being lied to on a lot of levels. And um, and that it's because someone is making money 
and someone has a friend who's making money. And I don't think that those people, <laughs> whoever they may be, who keep promoting this toxic substance, I don't know how they sleep at night. I really don't. I think they must be in a constant state of denial. I think they know, but I don't think they acknowledge it. And on a on a level of uh, communication, what do you reckon are the best ways we can help communicate environmental issues effectively? I think to just talk about it and to um, take that one minute to just say why you're refusing a plastic grocery bag. Why? Because it's going to end up in a turtle's nose. Have you seen the turtle in uh, with a straw in his nose video or a plastic fork in a turtle's nose? You know, I think those are conversation starters because, you know, everybody's going to like get it up on their screen. And if you see that once, I don't know how you could not be changed by that um, suffering, you know, that you you are witnessing. Um, I suppose some people might not be moved by that. And then I think the second attempt to explain why this is a horrible material is all of the human diseases that are associated with this, with this endocrine disrupting hormone, like material, which are these plastic chemicals. And, um, you know, it's been related to a host of diseases. It's been linked to obesity, Alzheimer's, ADHD, uh, early menses in little girls, a particular um, male genital birth defect called hypospadia. The list goes on and it is not stopping. And I think um, even though they don't have BPA anymore, they have BPB, BPD, BPC, BB, you know, on and on. So they're just switching the names. It's a bait and switch. Typical, uh, you know, of any kind of, you know, I think material that should be made illegal, you know, something change, simply change the name and you think you're, you're okay. Often those new chemicals are worse. And then the other thing we have to talk about is social justice, because a lot of places around the world, and I've been in those places, I've, I've worked with people there and gotten to know them, and um, you don't always have the choice. And so we need to also recognize that plastic is usually the cheapest way out. And if it's the cheapest way out, it's often going to end up in the places that uh, have the lowest income. And, you know, unfortunately, those places are also places that are you know, in the cancer alleys of the United States or anywhere in the world where they're going to locate these chemical plants and the soil and the water are also contaminated. And often these are places where there are uh, uh, people of color and they are, there's still a lot of racial injustice around the world. And it's particularly also being acted out in, you know, this plastic that we are dealing with. I think once we realize that it's not just a, an environmental issue. It's not just a health issue. It's not just uh, an ocean issue. It is a social justice issue. And we apply that filter to it. And we start to truly understand the politics of economies and places uh, where people are not treated fairly. Then we understand something even deeper about the problems of the way food and water is packaged in lower income communities. And I think that's when we might truly be able to figure out how to treat each other well as humans. And I think, you know, in some ways that has to even come first before we can figure out how to treat the non-human world better. So I'm really hopeful that all this is going to somewhere. I am hopeful because we saw an enormous change happen across the world with COVID. 
And as, as horrifying as that has been and all the deaths that it's caused, I do think, you know, it's simultaneity with Black Lives Matter and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, you know, shortly before that was uh, Me Too and all of the issues that were coming out about gender injustice, then we start to realize that we are a species that is in need of healing and we have to do that, I think, ourselves. We have to save ourselves. And have there been any great books that you've read along the way which have been particularly influential to you? Sure. Um, you know, it came out the exact same year as I had my first public project with, uh, in fact, the exact same month, I think, was January 2006, um, Moby Duck. And it's a, it's an amazing um, sort of tale of the uh, discovery of um, the ocean currents uh, by Curtis Ebesmeyer as he was tracking the container spills that, that unleashed hundreds of thousands of these little bathtubby toys all around the world. Um, because they had a location and a date, and then they were showing up on beaches all over the world. So he was able to, as an oceanographer, decipher all of that. And it was incredible. And it, the story is written by Donovan Hone. And so he's a fantastic writer that I actually got a chance to meet on several occasions. And um, that was pivotal. I think E.O. Wilson is another incredibly important writer. He's an ant biologist, and he has uh, really helped us understand, you know, where our role in this sort of planetary combination of species really is and how we are not the most important by far. In fact, we're, you know, somewhat dispensable <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. So I think we better, you know, we better figure out how to get along better with the rest of, of our uh, fellow earthlings. And then, you know, I, I have to, to lift my hat and raise my my hand in solidarity and thanks to uh, David Attenborough because he literally has, you know, I think awoken so many people to what's at stake, what we're losing. And especially his work in his 90s, what he's been doing now is so critical. I can get choked up talking about this, um, you know. And then, you know, I think there's a lot of heroes that came before him too, and they're female heroes, and they're Jane Goodall and, uh, Diane Fossey with the gorillas and, and um, you know, just people that helped us understand our relationship to the non-human world and, and the intelligence of nature. And, and is there any particular advice you'd give to creative people or artists that are looking to, to use their skill sets to, to raise awareness for environmental causes? I just think that there's no more worthy work you could undertake as an artist. I truly believe that. I think Art has more functions than to critique society, um, you know, and I don't mean that I, you know, I gave my air quotes for that and probably rolled my eyes a little bit. Uh, I think there's a functional job that art can do in terms of education and moving people emotionally um, that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, I think what has been a long time valued in the art world, which is a kind of ironic stance you know, I, as a, as an eco-feminist and an environmental artist, I feel like I've been my whole life. It's only very recently that this has, you know, come into fashion, I guess you can say, where people, you know, in, in the larger art world are paying more attention to this as a way of approaching art making. And I'm super grateful that I lived long enough to see that happen because I think it does give art a bigger role 
it gives art a role in in transformation you know i think more so than even just critiquing culture or mirroring our times which i think you know i feel like my work is doing also but i think it 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 has a role in transformation and moving not just culture forward but the whole species the whole planetary web of life forward that's a lofty goal um <laughs> In the meantime, do what you love and care for what you love. And I think you will make your best art. Know yourself and do what you love. And are there any particular organizations or resources that you feel people should look into? So many. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to um, mention one because it's a coalition. It's a collective of hundreds of other organizations. And that's the brilliance of it. It's a collaborative entity that is open to anyone who wants to join in its plastic pollution coalition. And it is, I think, one of the most impactful forces on the planet working towards changing our relationship to this material and trying to undo some of the damage that this material is doing and has done. And um, Plastic Pollution Coalition, uh, you can find it online, plasticpollutioncoalition.org. You can join it. There's tons of information. There's information for educators. There's information for mothers. There's information for uh, all different kinds of communities. They're active in um, a lot of these low-income communities that are at most at risk, uh, and they're they're working politically as well. And um, they were a key partner in the Break Free Pump Plastic Act, which is in Congress right now. We finally got some Congresspersons to to promote this, and you know. With crossed fingers and big hopes, it will pass, and that will change. That will change the playing field quite a bit, at least in this country. And the U.S. is far behind a lot of other places on Earth, including a lot of African countries. They've already banned, you know, lots of different kinds of plastic. I don't have any other questions off the top of my head, but is there anything I've missed? Any last words you'd like to say to listeners? Well, I I do want to mention this new project, which is kind of highlighting um, all these people around the world who might have been collecting plastic um, for for decades already, or perhaps you're new to it. But I'm I'm really um, I'm collecting a group of collectors, uh, and I'm calling this project Ocean Gleaners, and and I'm I'm inviting people to get in touch with um, with photographs you know these forensic photographs of the sites where they have might have found a piece of plastic that they believe is giving them a message the date the location and then um, what that message is and I'm producing a book um, that fall line press is is publishing along with the Baker Museum where there's going to be a very big show. It's almost a retrospective of my Drifters Project work, and a component of that is going to be the Ocean Gleaners Project. So it'll be a publication and a museum show for for everyone that uh, ends up being selected. You know, which will be the most interesting ones of the submissions. I've got a lot of um, submissions from all over the world, and you know, everybody's going to end up on a website. That's for sure. And it's it's just to honor other people who have been act at this for a very long time and uh i super love uh there's so many um brits that are involved they're they're really uh they a lot of them are called mudlarkers which i love that <laughs> i've never heard of the term <laughs> yeah it's mean, funny. It's the thing. 
Yeah, um, but it has to be plastic and you it has to be giving you a message. The message is equally as important as the object. So um, if, you, if you are interested, um, you can go to oceangleaners.net. That's a website and it has a little bit of information about what to send and and a, a, a form to send it on. So in the in the show description for this episode, I'll I'll add a link to it for sure. Oh, perfect! Thank Anyone you. Anyone be able to Toby. check it out easily? <laughs> I'm so thrilled we finally got to do this, and I'm I, maybe it's even better that it was now instead of later because I wouldn't have had that project. Uh, yeah, maybe it was about. meant to be. Yeah, <laughs> right. No, I'm glad we did we did it too. Super. But yeah, so thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Toby. It's a pleasure. In two weeks, we'll be back with the final episode of season one of Green Canvas. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.